Hello and welcome to OPG Inspire, your source of the latest in organizational development, innovative leadership, and the tools you need to make a better world. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Katie Redford, co-founder and director of Earthrights International. Earthrights International, or ERI, is a non-governmental, non-profit organization that combines the power of law and the power of people in the defense of human rights and the environment, which they define as Earthrights. They specialize in fact-finding, legal actions against perpetrators of earth rights abuses, training grassroots and community leaders, and advocacy campaigns. My conversation with Katie was fascinating. Her perspective on tackling seemingly insurmountable problems in the world is more than inspiring. She provides a playbook on how to use your idealistic passion for justice in conservative, change-making fashions. I love this interview, and I hope you will as well. With that, my interview with Katie Redford. But let's get started with introducing yourself. So tell us a, an abridged version of your story and how you came to be co-founding Earthrights International. I was um, generally, as a young person, sort of in high school and college, I would say a, a generalized do-gooder, someone who, you know, other people might call me a sap, um, but, you know, who felt very passionately about um, issues of injustice and fairness and sort of a lot of compassion for communities and people who were who were suffering um, from various situations and for that reason and particularly this this commitment to sort of notions however vague they may have been at the time of justice um, I felt like I wanted to eventually pursue a career in the law. And so, you know, as everyone does when they graduate from college, you figure out what you're gonna do when you grow up. And I had decided that I wanted to go to law school, but beyond that, I really didn't know what that was gonna look like or have any particular focus on what kind of law I wanted to do, except for, you know, helping people who needed help and fighting for truth, justice, and the rule of law, these vague ideas. And in between college and law school, I um, did a program called World Teach on the Thai Burma border, where I worked with marginalized communities from Burma. I lived in a refugee camp, and I really saw firsthand um, the suffering of, of refugees from Burma who were literally running for their lives across the border to the camp I was in from an unjust, brutal military dictatorship um, that was ruling Burma with nothing um, more than you know guns and brute power and force to keep their people op oppressed. And so for me, that really focused my kind of vague notion of justice and injustice on this idea of um, the power of human rights and the importance of human rights for the dignity and peace and peaceful existence of, of human beings. And so with that in mind, I kind of entered law school um, at the University of Virginia thinking, okay, I wanna use my privilege and my education to help folks in Burma and maybe elsewhere in the world who don't have the, the privileges of democracy, of education, of human rights. Um, and I say privileges, I mean, human rights are legally um, 
are supposed to be legally enforceable. So they shouldn't be described as privileges. They should be what they are, which is rights. But obviously, that is not a situation that was um, the reality in Burma back in the 90s, and certainly not a situation that many people enjoy in the world today. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, but anyway, during law school, you know, I learned how to be a lawyer. I actually learned that um, many people don't go to law school for the same reasons that I do. And you know that law can be a tool, yes, for justice, but it's also a tool of power and, um, and wealth and of sort of reinforcing um, many of the inequities and inequalities that we're fighting at Earthrights today. And so um, during my time there, I went back to the Thai-Burma border and learned not only more about the, the human rights abuses happening in Burma, but that the complicity of American and other international corporations in many of the human rights abuses that folks in Burma were suffering and still running from and fleeing across borders from. And one in particular was an American company called Unical, um, a, a big oil and gas company that has since been taken over by Chevron that had gone into a, a partnership with the Burmese military dictatorship to develop offshore gas reserves and to build a pipeline across Burma into Thailand in order to sell and export gas. And um, as part of this contract, Unical essentially hired the most brutal military in the world to provide quote unquote security for their pipeline and what that meant on the ground for the indigenous people and the ethnic minorities and the villagers who lived in the pipeline region. Um, security meant massive forced labor. It meant rape of village women by the soldiers guarding the pipeline. It meant um, conscripting people from, you know, young people to old people to build pipeline roads, infrastructure, and helipads for the pipeline and essentially slavery for this American oil company um, with their full knowledge. And so being a young law student and still having the ideals of truth and justice in my mind, I thought this just can't be right and set out to essentially um, try to find a legal fix and accountability for this kind of problem. And together with a friend of mine from law school and a Burmese activist um, from Burma, human rights activist, we decided to start Earth Rights International to combine the power of law and the power of people in defense of human rights and the environment. Because we believed, as we still very much believe today, that anyone, whether you're a government a corporation or an individual that is either perpetrating or complicit in egregious human rights abuses like rape, torture, killing, slave labor, widespread forced relocation, that there are laws that prohibit all of these terrible, terrible abuses. And those laws need to be upheld, they need to be promoted, they need to be enforced, and those who violate those laws need to be punished. Um, and so we started Earth Rights International to do just that, to use the power of law and, and to bring these perpetrators to justice. 
Um, so that was in 1995 that we started Earthrights International. Um, actually started it my third year in law school, put everything together, graduated, took the bar, and the very next day flew to Thailand um, <laughs> and started working on um, putting together a lawsuit against this oil company that eventually became a groundbreaking precedent-setting case where it was the first of its kind um, to successfully force a, a, a corporation to um, account for its complicity and its involvement in human rights abuses that happened outside of its home jurisdiction. So back in the 90s, corporations could be confident that, well, if we're from America and we do something illegal or terrible in a country like Burma, you can't do anything to us because what happens in Burma stays in Burma, essentially. Um, and so we felt that the international legal system needed to change to sort of catch up with the globalization of markets, the economic globalization, corporate globalization, and to transcend national boundaries and that companies and anyone really should be held accountable for human rights abuses regardless of where they take place. Mm -hmm. Now, when you were at the University of Virginia, um, you actually suggested, you turned in a paper that suggested that an ancient American federal statute could be used to fight human rights uh, abuses in Burma. And uh, your parent, apparently your professor said that, that you shouldn't be an idealist um, <laughs> in response to that. Yeah. So what does it mean to be an idealist, not only in situations like this, but as a leader in general? And where can being an idealist go wrong in those kinds of situations? Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, what we did was we looked at the facts on the ground, which was that these abuses were happening, that these companies were complicit in them, and that these kinds of abuses were, at least on paper, prohibited by international law. And so we didn't feel like we were idealists at all by suggesting that these laws should be enforced against corporations. We felt like this was actually a very practical and rational step to having the international justice system or the U.S. system of justice catch up with the progress, if you want to call it that, of corporate globalization and economic globalization. That in, in, in essence, there should be, and that it was rational to have a globalization of justice that was commensurate with the globalization of economies and markets. And so, mm -hmm. um, and then of course we did the research I did write the paper. It was a very good paper. My professor actually gave me an A on it, I think, or an A minus, before he then said, this is impossible. This will never happen. It's a terrible idea. It's unconstitutional. So those things he said before he said. <laughs> and you really need to stop being an idealist mm -hmm. because this will never happen. And I did sort of pause for a minute and say to myself, oh my gosh, okay, Katie, you are an idealist. And then I thought, no, this is very well thought out. It's strategic, it's rational, it makes sense, and it's actually backed up by facts and legal research. And so you're just saying this is never gonna happen because no one's ever done it before. And I think that you know, everyone is crazy and an idealist until the crazy idealistic thing that they try works and then instantly you're a genius 
you're an innovator, you're a visionary, you're an entrepreneur, right? Mm. And so I think that, um, of course, there has to be a balance between idealism and um, strategy and smarts and facts, because if you're just sort of spewing out what you want reality to be without anything to back it up, then truly you are a dreamer and that's not something that can be executed as part of a plan. But I think that having ideals and visions for change that are then backed up by concrete facts, strategies, plans, and a way to implement them that is exactly the kind of idealist and visionary that we need desperately right now. So let's talk a little bit more about law. So, you know, as you mentioned in the, the mission of ERI states that you combine the power of law and the power of people in defense of human rights and the environment. So what is the relationship between the powers of law and people? And do they ever stand in contradiction to each other? Yes, they absolutely do. And I think we're seeing um, right now in the United States a, a phenomenon that people around the world are quite familiar with, um, particularly people who have been living under authoritarian autocratic regimes, um, which we are increasingly experiencing now, where governments tend to use law as a tool to suppress rights, to harm people, to entrench their own power. Um, and in fact, when we started Earth Rights and we were focusing on Burma, it was very difficult for us to initially build trust with communities and the people who became our eventual clients because they didn't trust lawyers at all. They didn't trust the word law. In fact, one person said to me, when I hear the word law, I want to run in the other direction because that means I'm going to be arrested or it's going to be an excuse to take something away from me. Mm -hmm. And so um, we are seeing that in the United States now more and more, and the rhetoric of enforcing the law, law enforcement as a way of taking away people's rights um, is something that we have to watch very, very closely. Um, that is not obviously ERI's vision of the law. We believe in um, the sort of, if you want to say, the both American and international regime of, you know, laws are a check on power. You know, the United States was established as a government of laws, not men. And what that means is that there are a set of standards that apply to everyone equally, both in terms of controlling behavior as well as protecting rights. And so law should be a tool that equalizes power, and that is how we use it. We very much believe in sort of the ideal of justice being blind. And if you you know look at um, Lady Justice, always has a, a blindfold on, and that notion that it doesn't matter if you are the poorest, most marginalized person on the planet, or you're the most powerful corporation or individual on the planet that your rights are equal and you will have equal access to justice regardless of who you are. And so that's really the, the goal. Um, and then in terms of 
sort of beyond the, the ideal, the practicality of it is that law can be a very powerful tool um, when used appropriately to enforce and promote rights or in the case of the environment, you know, protection and regulation. Um, and it's something that is very concrete um, that, you, you know, at the end of the day, if you file a lawsuit, you can get a verdict. You can get a court or a jury to compensate victims and survivors. You can get a court to order a certain harmful behavior to stop. You can advocate for laws in your government that actually prevent and bad things from happening and regulate governments and, and corporations and individuals for what they can and cannot do to human beings and the natural world. So we see it both as a really important um, tool for the broader notion of justice, but also really a tool for achieving that that's very concrete and strategic. So uh, some of the organizations and governments that you take on appear to be invincible. Um, and you know, a lot of your work is easily comparable to the story of David and Goliath. So what kind of mentality is necessary to even begin the process of taking on these kinds of legal battles? Just for our listeners to get a perspective on what it takes in your mind when you prepare yourself. That's such a good question. I think every single person who does this kind of work, if you ask them that question, they would give you a slightly different answer. Um, and for me, it's, sort of goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning, which is this, this passionate commitment to the notions of justice and fairness, and maybe an overdeveloped sense of compassion and empathy, um, that it's not so much for me, what do we need to do to take this on, but it's more, how can we not? This is so egregious. It is so wrong and it must be addressed. And so there is, I think, in the kind of people that do this work, something that drives them that's sort of like a fire inside that burns um, that helps prepare you for, yes, very much David and Goliath battle. Um, that we often, even though we have some great victories and success stories, often we do lose. Um, and, and we get right up and we do it again. And so for some people, it is anger. For others, it's compassion. For others, it's you know some sort of experience that they've had in the past or, so, or a particular community that they have a personal relationship with. Um, as a lawyer, we actually serve individual clients. And so for many of the lawyers at Earthrights, we know our clients for years. We know their families, we know their children. These are, some of these cases are 10 to 15 year legal battles. And so it actually becomes both, you know, a strategic and intellectual act pursuit, but also a personal commitment to standing together and being in it for the long haul with your clients. Um, and I should say that that's definitely not only 
for the lawyers. At, at Earthrights, um, we have three major program areas. We have our legal program that we've talked about. We have a campaigns and advocacy program, which advocates for the same kinds of things that our lawsuits do, um, but maybe their legislation or policies or you know holding perpetrators accountable in the court of public opinion. But there's always, I think, a story that goes along with any issue we're advocating for um, that has a name and a face and a family, or if it's a, a river or a forest, it's something that we feel very personally connected to. Um, and it's, it's quite an individual thing, but I think um, across the board, there's no one who stays in this field who's just doing it for, you know, the paycheck or <laughs> because it's an intellectually fulfilling job, which it is, and the paycheck is great. Um, many people do this kind of work as volunteers, and I feel privileged that I get to do it for my quote-unquote career, um, but truly what keeps people in it and what prepares us for those next battles that are sometimes feeling very overwhelming and daunting um, is this this drive that is really connected to the communities and to the land that um, that that we are working with. Mm -hmm. Now, and of course, you run into crazy roadblocks uh, in these processes that uh, may, you know, for most people make may shake them a great deal. On one of your trips, I believe to Thailand, you contracted uh, malaria and lost twenty pounds, but only delayed your research for one day, famously. So what kind of, what was going on in your mind during that time? Right. Well, so I, <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> like, oh my God, you lost 20 pounds. And, and, and big joke was like, how do I get on a malaria diet? Um, oh but, um, well, I mean, part of it is sort of connected to what I was just saying, which is, okay, so I got malaria and um, everyone who was in the jungle with me that was, helping me plan my trip and sort of dropping what they were doing for a week to help facilitate the work that I needed to do. They all had malaria too. And so there is a certain point at which, you know, it might not be for everyone. And that particular piece might not be for everyone. Had you told me that that was going to happen and that's what I was going to do in advance, I would have been like, no, I'm not. I would never do that. That's crazy. If you have malaria, you need to rest and get better. But in the moment when I looked around at everyone and they were sort of like, yeah, so do you still want to go tomorrow? And I thought, well, yeah, definitely. It never even crossed my mind to change my mind or to change my plans. And it, it wasn't hard. Um, and so I think sometimes the idea of things are more daunting than the actual reality when you're in it. And that was certainly the case in that situation. Um, I even look back on it and I think, oh my God, like I would never advise any of my students or my <laughs> kids. Don't try this at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think it, it, it's connected back to this, um, I don't wanna say blind idealism because that's definitely the wrong word but it is it is um a drive for for me for justice and accountability and fairness that sometimes gets in the way of otherwise totally rational thinking 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, after the the after ERI received its first grant of thirty thousand dollars, you once said, um, "We didn't listen to people who told us it couldn't be done." That's why I think it's so important for young people to do this kind of work. Older people wouldn't do it. And my question for you is, do you still feel this way? How do you inspire youth to take on this kind of work? And is there still a way to inspire the older population as well who may not feel as passionately? Absolutely. And in fact, um, I would amend that comment to say, not that older people wouldn't do it, but older people might be less likely to do it and think of a lot of reasons why it might not work because they have, and I can count myself as an older person now, I have the perspective and experience of all the times that it didn't work <laughs> over the past you know, 20 years of my career. And so that's very useful wisdom and experience um, to consider. And at the same time, there is this incredible energy and vision and idealism of youth because they haven't had that experience yet of trying something and failing or losing or it not working that makes them think twice in a way that maybe I would think twice today. Now, I still do. Um, when I am thinking twice, I catch myself and say, okay, Haiti, is that the right kind of thinking twice? Or is that just your older person thinking twice that you need to just tell to shut up for a minute? <laughs> you know, but, um, but I do think that because of just the, by definition, young people aren't as experienced. And sometimes experience can be a very discouraging, silencing force. And um, at the same time, I think young people are braver in terms of, well, I'm just going to say what I think, and it might be a stupid idea, but so what? It's a stupid idea. I'll say another idea until it works. Um, mm. I think young people are definitely braver in terms of feeling invincible, and that's something you have to be careful of, particularly in a line of work like human rights, which can be dangerous. Um, and I think that um, young people have new ideas that, those of us who have been maybe doing it for a long time in a certain way aren't necessarily going in those directions naturally in the way that young folks are. And so, yeah, we have always, um, since day one and still today, really made it an intentional and strategic part of our mission to train and mentor and also learn from the next generation of earth rights defenders, as we call them, and that um, you can see in our programs. Um, for example, we have the earth rights schools that we um, run in Southeast Asia, where we literally are looking for young people, um, you know, just out of high school, college, sort of that stage of their life where they are stepping into a new form of leadership in human rights and environmental um, advocacy and work, people from the Mekong region. So the Earth Rights School students are from Burma, Cambodia, Laos, China, Thailand, Vietnam. Um, we have right now, actually half of our staff from Earth Rights are gone down to our office in the Amazon where we're training 
um, a group of sort of next generation legal advocates from the Amazon region and indigenous communities um, so that you know, they can have more skills and power to effectively combat the, the, the threats that are facing their communities and, and the entire Amazon region. And so, you know, the truth is, is that there's, there's this piece of working with young people that is about different ways of thinking about longstanding problems, about idealism, about sort of not listening to the quote-unquote experts that is incredibly valuable when harnessed effectively. And the other side of it is that these issues that we're working on, like human rights and fundamental freedoms and dignity for all people and, you know, a global environment that is sustainable for all the world's communities, None of these things are going to be accomplished in my lifetime. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so, in fact, actually, it's not even a marathon. It's a relay race. <laughs> and so if we're not training the next generation and young people and bringing them along and helping them figure out their place in this movement, then there's no one to both run the marathon with as well as hand the baton to when when mm -hmm. we're done. And so this is really long-term work and there's so many reasons. And I don't actually think um, right now young people need to be inspired. I think that young people are really fired up right now. Yeah. If, they're, if they're paying attention, um, it's really more like, okay, there is incredible energy and fire and how do we harness it in a way that's really effective um, and working towards concrete change as opposed to sort of flailing around and maybe um, not knowing how to direct that. And I think there are so many ways and our way is one way, but there are so many ways that we mm -hmm. need to be getting. Um, yeah. So you were, you were in that situation, you know, you were young, you were passionate. Um, but uh, you know, for those of listeners who are, you know, feeling powerless either by their government or issues in their community or by an issue that they're passionate about. Um, what is your advice for them just to get started? Well, I think the first step is exactly what was the first step for me, which is what is it that you're passionate about? Um, you know, like I said, I was sort of generalized bleeding heart and I joined a lot of groups. I joined Amnesty International. I joined the Sierra Club. I joined Greenpeace. And I started, you know, going um, to a lot of events and participating. And eventually what grabbed me and what changed that from a general to a specific where I just was going to dedicate my life to it was actually going and living in communities that were experiencing the harms that, um, that I was so passionate about. And that could be the path forward for some people. For other people, it's, you know, going and working in prisons. For other people, it's going on a hike and being so moved and committed to a certain area of, of the country or the world that you want to preserve and protect. And so I really think that um, particularly for students in college or graduate school where there is there are there is time there are clubs to join there are volunteer opportunities if people don't know what exactly it is they're passionate about then 
it's important to start trying different things and figuring that out. Because I think that this kind of work does really require more than just an intellectual commitment um, or an intellectual interest. It, it requires something that comes from like your heart or your belly, which sounds sort of cheesy, but it really is. That's how you sustain the, the, the work that is David and Goliath and the odds are overwhelmingly um, difficult against you um, is that it, it goes beyond just like something that's going on in your brain. And so I would tell young people, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to figure out sort of your life's work and your life passion and you don't know quite what that issue is, um, to try stuff because that's where you're going to figure it out. And also there's a lot of short-term stuff, um, particularly, you know, as American, um, for, for your American audience, um, that is happening in this country right now, whether you're passionate about gun violence or women's issues or immigration and refugees or family separation or climate change, which my gosh is the biggest threat to human rights and the environment globally and in this country that we all have to be focused on. There's so many opportunities to get involved at the community level at the state level and nationally as well. And of course, as a believer in democracy of laws, not men, I mean, every single person needs to register to vote and vote because- um, Yes, get out there and vote. <laughs> something that is so easy and so unbelievably, um, it's such an unbelievable missed opportunity when you think of things like, okay, for young people, the demographic is of 18 to 24 in the 2016 election, less than 50% of them voted. Um, so think about the power there. If just that demographic, which has the most to win or lose because it's the future, um, is the longest for them. So yeah, um, there's so many things to do and registering to vote is so easy and then registering isn't enough you have to actually vote also so let's talk quickly about the next steps for eri what events or major battles are coming up for your organization well um we are absolutely committed to the work that we've always been doing which is representing um, communities and individuals who have been harmed by corporate and government abuse. Um, and so we have litigation against Chiquita, for example, that's going to trial in the next year, Chiquita Banana, um, for their complicity in crimes against humanity in Colombia. Um, Chiquita, um, we allege in the lawsuit, hired paramilitary death squads in Colombia to secure its fruit growing um, regions there. We have a case going actually to the Supreme Court in October where we represent uh, villagers from India whose lives, livelihoods, and health have been devastated by India's largest coal fire power plant, which of course also has an incredible impact on, on global climate um, issues as well. 
Um, but our case is actually against the World Bank and their private lending arm, the International Financial Corporation, Finance Corporation, IFC, because the World Bank financed this coal fire power plant in violation of all of its policies, all of its own rules and standards. And turns out that the state of the law today regarding international financial institutions like the World Bank is they have absolute immunity for anything that they do. And so we are going to the Supreme Court to challenge that immunity and say that no one in 2018 or ever should be 100% above the law um, because that's licensed to do whatever you want, licensed to finance murder, for example, which is another case that we have against the World Bank and the IFC for, for their complicity in murder in Honduras. So these are some of our cases that are coming up. Um, and we are also um, have recently been focusing on two new areas of human rights and environmental abuses, which we think, um, and, and they're not new in terms of um, the threats or the harms, but they're new areas for earth rights in terms of our work and our ability to use our own strategies and strengths to address them. And one is, as I was mentioning, climate change, which, um, which is the, the biggest threat. I mean, it's an existential threat to human rights and the environment worldwide. Um, and so we are representing actually communities in the United States who are suing the big fossil fuel companies for their role in both um, knowing about climate change, contributing to global climate change, covering it up, <laughs> their knowledge of the science and existence of climate change, profiting from it for the past 50 years, et cetera. So we have um, one case right now that we're litigating um, on behalf of communities in Colorado, and we're looking to file other cases probably in the next couple of years to really demand justice um, and hold those who cause the problem, the fossil fuel companies, accountable um, and to provide remedies and resiliency and mitigation and adaptation um, resources for the communities that are suffering right now. Um, and then the other sort of major area of work that we would rather not be having to do, but this is very reactive to current um, trends, both globally and particularly in the United States, is um, the protection and defense of what we call earth rights defenders, which are you know individuals, activists, lawyers, NGOs, who are exercising their free speech and association rights to stand up against injustice and to protect human rights and the environment. And more and more around the world, frontline defenders are being killed, criminalized, threatened with violence. Um, and here in the United States, activists and NGOs are being, um, are being sued, um, are being slapped with, with lawsuits, um, are being arrested for protesting, are all kinds of pressures that are restricting First Amendment rights in this country. So um, we've been involved in a lot of actual legal defense of activists and NGOs and lawyers who um, are being sued mm -hmm. and subpoenaed by companies and, um, and their supporters. 
Well, Katie, thank you so much for your help and for your amazing work that you're doing. Um, I'm going to track your work closely of, over the next couple of years, and I encourage everyone who's listening to do so as well. Um, I know that you guys are on earthrights.org and that people will be able to come, donate, uh, interact with the kind of work that you're doing. So that is um, fabulous. And thank you so much for sitting down with me today for this podcast. Thank you so much for having me and thank your audience for stepping up and getting involved however makes most sense for them. Let's make a difference together. Great. Thank you so much, Katie. Okay. That was my interview with Katie Redford, co-founder and director of Earthrights International. To learn more about her work, visit earthrights.org and see what you can do to help the causes. One phrase that struck me from my conversation with Katie was her perspective on fear. She said, let your fear of failure hone your actions, not prevent them. I cannot think of a better outlook when facing a problem that no one else has solved. In this model, failure is a necessary component of building towards your goals. As Katie mentions, this sort of work is never a marathon, but a relay race. Build the people up around you and perform the kind of work that you can pass on and proliferate into the future. When you truly live and immerse yourself in the problem you're trying to fix, you can find resources that were previously invisible, and every failure becomes a brick in your road to succeeding. Remember, as Katie puts it, you are an idealist until it works. Then you are an innovator. With that, this is Robert Roach, signing off.